Good morning and welcome to the Houghton Wesleyan Church. It's great to see familiar faces as well as um, alum and friends and family of alum and others that are here this morning. Will you please stand and sing or er, say the call to worship with me? <laughs> Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Please pray with me. Dear Lord, we come to you with joyfulness this morning that despite the busyness of our weeks and the stresses that come to us, that we can come together today as a family, worshiping you and forget our burdens to celebrate and worship together. Help this hour of worship be pleasing to you and be a time of rest and relaxation and thoughtfulness. In the Lord's name we pray. Amen.
It's great to welcome you to this worship service today, and we especially welcome those of you who may be here for homecoming weekend. We give you a chance to uh, greet others who are here in worship and to share a word of peace. just be a shoebox. But to millions, it is the start of the greatest journey. Traveling the world, sent with prayer. More than eight and a half million shoebox gifts fill the hearts of children from over 100 different countries with hope, faith, and love. This is the story of Operation Christmas Child. There you go. You know, we're in India right now in Hyderabad, and these kids, they've never had a gift like this. And when we can give a gift and do it in the name of Jesus Christ, it means everything in the world. Since 1993, Operation Christmas Child has delivered more than 95 million shoebox gifts in over 130 different countries. There are so many fun ways to get involved with Operation Christmas Child. Don't forget to pack a shoebox. OCC to NYC. Lots of great conversations, lots of opportunities to tell people how they can make a difference in the life of a child through a simple shoebox gift. I'm back home in my home church, First Baptist of Garner, doing a shoebox packing party with the whole church. This is fun. We'll see you in the Dominican Republic. It means a lot to be able to, you know, to pack your own shoebox and to actually be able to go to that country where the kids are receiving it and, and to see the kid who's going to be receiving your box. It's going to be an amazing day when, the, when that day comes when I'm face to face with Jesus Christ in heaven. To so see some children that received a shoebox who might have never heard or seen Christ's love to them before and and gotten that shoebox, and because of that, they're in heaven with me. Living in the midst of the most desperate of circumstances, Ralph, a nine-year-old child from the Philippines, found hope in his shoebox gift. Not only did I receive a gift, but I also prayed to receive Christ as my Lord. Knowing God will always love me means everything to me. It's not just you give a box and we walk away. God is using the greatest journey as a discipleship program. And these kids are responding to it. Jesus said that you don't light a candle and put it under a bushel. You put it so the whole world can see. And when a child's life is changed, it cannot be hidden. When you see their faces, their smiles, the joy that, that they get when they open that box, it's almost like they're breathing the Lord in when they open that. It's beautiful. You know, every box uh, is important. They're all different. And uh, put good stuff in it. These kids, we're giving these boxes to our kids that have never had a gift in their life. And they need to know that God so loved the world that he gave. His only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but should have everlasting life. We want the children of the world to know about God's love. And every child, we're going to follow up with them and we're going to disciple them. Thank you for your gift. Every box is important. Get involved. We need your help. We need your support. God bless you. Thank you. And a Merry Christmas. I not need to skydive to get your uh, box in, but if you want, okay. But we, uh, we are, have been part of this ministry for a number of years, and we're excited to be involved again. The goal is to move from over 95 million boxes total that have been distributed to over 100 million boxes. 
And uh, we want to be a part of, of that this year. God has used this in amazing ways, just a little shoebox. And actually, I was stunned. We just started this morning, and as I was walking over here for this service, someone was bringing a shoebox in already, so they were really on top of it. But uh, there's some information in your bulletin, uh, insert about the ministry. Uh, there's also a, a bookmark that you can use, a prayer guide. Uh, thank you for uh, your participation. And if you have any questions about it, you can check the church website, our Facebook page, or contact the church office, and we will help you get connected to this important way of reaching out to, to others. Uh, there's also another insert in your bulletin about the Houghton Volunteer Fire Department. We appreciate so much the people who volunteer here to uh, help us in times of crisis. Uh, there is need for uh, financial help to buy new equipment and uh, to stay on top of things. But also there's a need for uh, people and uh, people who are willing to, to serve in the volunteer fire department. Every time the siren goes off, whether it's 2 in the afternoon or 2 in the morning, there are probably half a dozen or more people who are stopping what they're doing or getting out of bed to assist us. And we really appreciate that. And so we want to, to give back. If you can help out, if you have questions about it, there's, an, there's information on the back uh, that you can fill out. Uh, in the back foyer, as well as the uh, community room foyer, there are uh, canisters, fire extinguishers that have been drilled. A hole's been drilled into those, and you can drop uh, gifts into there. You can also drop this, uh, if you want to fill out a form, you drop it in there, and we'll get that to them. And we just want to be supportive of people who support us. And we appreciate so much the, uh, the willingness of people to volunteer and to help us in our times of crisis. And any way we can help, we want to do that as well. So I encourage you to get involved one way or another. There are a number of prayer concerns in the bulletin, and I uh, want to remember those who are, who are struggling uh, near us as well as things around the world. And also you'll note that our prayer vigil begins uh, October 28th. This is the fourth year that we've done a three-week, 24-hour day, seven days a week prayer vigil. And I know it's, it's been transformational for so many of us. And we want you to be involved. And uh, God will, will do amazing things as we give ourselves to prayer. Next week, you'll be hearing more about it. We'll begin sign-ups uh, next week as well uh, for the, the three weeks. And we just want you to be praying and thinking about your involvement as we join together in about 504 hours of continual prayer, uh, asking God to do some amazing things in us and among us as well. I want to invite you to join me in the prayer of confession that is printed in your bulletin. Let us pray together. Gracious Lord, we are far too often embroiled in conflict. We fight to get our own way. We wrestle for recognition. We argue in order to prove that we are right. We are typically more concerned with winning than with loving. Our attitude creates conflict, tension, and much pain in the church. Heavenly Father, forgive us. Give us a new vision of the Prince of Peace. Open our hearts to the Holy Spirit that makes us more interested in compassion and grace than perfection and judgment. We ask this in confidence, knowing that you hear us and that you forgive us through the mercy of Christ. Amen. The Old Testament scripture reading this morning is coming from 1 Samuel 25 and its select verses. But if you would like to turn there in your pew Bible, you may and sort of follow along as best as you can. (laughs) Now Samuel died and all Israel assembled and mourned for him. And they buried him at his home in Ramah. Then David moved down into the desert of Maon. There was in Maon a very rich man named Nabal. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. His wife Abigail was intelligent and beautiful, but the man, a Calebite, was surly and mean. David, in the desert, heard that Nabal was shearing his sheep at Carmel, so he chose 10 young men and said, Go to Nabal and greet him in my name. Say to him, Peace be to you and to your house. I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did them no harm. They missed nothing, for we guarded them all the time they were in the desert. 
Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to them and to your son David. The young men came to Nabal and said all this in the name of David, and then they waited. Who is David? Nabal answered. There are many servants nowadays who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and wine and meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? David's men came back and told him all this. This fellow has returned me evil for good, said David. God punish me if by morning I leave alive so much as one, of, uh, one male of all who belong to him. To his men, he said, put on your swords. Every man did so, and David also. He had about 600 men. 400 went with him, while 200 remained with the supplies. One of Nabal's young men told Abigail how her husband had received David's messengers. They were good to us all the while we were with him. Consider what you should do. Disaster is hanging over our master, and he is so ill-natured one cannot speak to him. Abigail lost no time. She took 200 loaves, two skins of wine, five sheep ready-dressed, five measures of parched grain, a hundred clusters of raisins, and 200 cakes of figs. She laid them on donkeys and departed, but she did not tell Nabal. As she came near the mountain, there was David, and his men were coming down toward her. When, he, when she saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and fell to the ground before him. Upon me alone, my lord, be the guilt, she said. Please hear the words of your servant. Let not my lord pay attention to this ill-natured fellow, Nabal, for folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men you sent. Now then, my lord, seeing that the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from taking vengeance with your own hand, let this present which your servant has brought be given to your young men. Please forgive my trespass, for your life shall be in the care of the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has dealt with you, my Lord, then remember your servant. Blessed be the God of Israel, David replied, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your good judgment, and blessed be you, who have kept me from blood guilt and from avenging myself with my own hand, as he received from her what she had brought him. Go home in peace, she said. I have heard your words and granted your request. When Abigail returned, Nabal was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. His heart was merry, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when he was sober, she told him these things, and his heart failed him, and he became like a stone. About ten days later, he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he wooed Abigail. Sending his servants to her at Carmel to say, David has sent us to take you to him as his wife. Abigail bowed with her face to the ground. She said, Your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. Then she rose and mounted a donkey, and with five maidens attending her, she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. This is the word of the Lord. As the ushers come forward, please stand and sing the Gloria Patri. Dear Lord, we come to you with grateful hearts. You bless us in so many ways, even ways that we have yet to know. Please help this time to be a time of giving that truly reflects our gratefulness for the blessings of which you've given to us. In the Lord's name we pray, amen. Our choir anthem this morning is Praise to the Lord the Almighty, and I want to invite each one of you to open your hymnals, please, to hymn number 63, so that you can join us in singing the final stanza, and I will turn and invite you to stand at the appropriate time.
The New Testament reading this morning comes from Romans 12, 9 through 21, and can be found on page 1123 in your pew Bibles. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. Serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. We have the opportunity to pray to God as a corporate body of believers, and it's been our practice for a few years, to invite those of you who would like to use the altar rail as the place where you come and pray. And You may want to come and pray about a burden in your own heart. You may want to come about a burden you have for someone else or something in the world. You just simply want to kneel when you pray. Or you can feel free to stand here in the front or use these red chairs to sit. But as we pray together, if you would like to come forward and pray, please join me. Father, you are the almighty God, and we have come today to worship you. We thank you that you are present with us in all of the moments of life. The moments that we call miraculous and the moments that we call common. The moments when we are filled with joy and the moments when we are overwhelmed with sorrow. The moments when we call life good. And the moments when we do not. Thank you for your constant presence in all of our lives. Father, we come today and ask that you would forgive us for the sins that we've committed against you and against one another. And help us to know the joy of your forgiveness. We pray that you will comfort all who are here today or those connected to us who are grieving. We pray that you will heal all who are sick. We pray that you would give peace to everyone who is worried and anxious and concerned about the future. And that you would restore every relationship that is broken and cracked. Father, we pray that as a congregation... You will give us more and more a love for each other and a love for you and a love for the world. That as your people in this world, our light would shine to people who need so much to see light. We do pray for our world and we are, we are burdened by the violence and the hatred that is so prevalent in our world. We pray that you would bring peace. We pray that you would that you would work in your children throughout the world. That we would help people to see that life is more and that you are the answer to every burden and to every concern 
that all of us face. Father, we thank you that you are always more ready to hear than we even are to pray. We thank you that you are more willing to give than we are even willing to receive. Pour out the abundance of your mercy upon us. Help us to live in the power of your spirit. Give us grace to be your children as you have created us and called us to be through Jesus Christ. Our Savior, our risen King, and our returning Lord, and the one who gives us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's stand together at this time and join in singing hymn number 339, God of all power and truth and grace. Our lives are really about relationships. Relationships are such an amazing gift from God. You know, we are are blessed through our relationships. Relationship of friends. Some of you are are here back this weekend and you have renewed acquaintances with people 
and, and you realize what strong bonds of friendship you have. And it's been glorious to be together. There, there is the, the, the bond of family and the blessing that we have of, of people who are related to us. And the fun we have and the joy we have and the support that we get from each other as, as family members. And, and there is the relationship of the church. God's people who are bonded together in Christ. And if you ever had that experience where you're out somewhere, you don't know anyone, and, and you're sitting in an airport or in a restaurant or someplace, and, and you begin a conversation, and you realize that that person is a Christian. There is this automatic bond that takes place just because we are one in Christ. And our, our, we are so blessed in our relationships we also know that relationships can be messy and complicated. And we can, and, and as wonderful and as much joy as relationships can bring to us, they are also the greatest source of pain and heartache and struggle. Because the people who are closest to us have the ability to hurt us the most. So friends who turn on us and family members who no longer support us and even in the church you know we we can hurt each other and and we can get into disagreements and fights and and what was supposed to be what was intended to be a place of nurture becomes anything but it's the nature of human relationships that they can be as wonderful as we can imagine and they can also be very difficult and messy and complicated. But that's not a new thing. That's not something that started with our generation. That has been going on a long, long time. And we see some of the messiness of relationships in this passage in 1 Samuel 25 that we read a few moments ago. He said the context of this story. A few years earlier, Saul has been anointed king of Israel But he rejects God, and so God tells Samuel, I want you to go as the prophet, as my prophet to the people, and I want you to choose David and anoint him as king. And and when when Saul dies, David's the king. And David lives in the palace for a while until Saul gets jealous and threatens his life. And David then spends the rest of, of Saul's life as king, David spends it running around the wilderness, trying to stay just a little bit ahead of Saul and his army, And he gathers around him about 600 men who are just a ragtag group of soldiers. And then we come to this story and David hears that uh, this man, Nabal, is shearing sheep. And he's a very wealthy man, so he has lots of sheep. And and the, the, the time of shearing sheep is sort of like the harvest. It's a big event. It's a big gathering. Lots of people come because he has lots of sheep. And there's feasting and and there's singing and partying and all of this. And David knows there's going to be a lot of food there. And his guys need some food. And so he sends some messengers to to Nabal and says, Look, when when your sheep herders were out in the wilderness, we protected them. You know, you almost get the feeling David's sort of like one of the guys in a big city, you know, one of the gangs in the big city that's, you know, sort of protection racket. And maybe he is. I don't know. But, but. He said, you know, we, we watched over them and now you owe us a little something. And, and Nabal says, why would I give you anything? Who's David? What do I care about David? And he doesn't, it's not, it doesn't mean that he doesn't know who David is. He's just simply speaking of David with contempt. David's like a, like a flea on the back of a dog. Why would I give him what I have? What do I care about David? He's nothing. He doesn't scare me. I'm not giving him anything. And he sends the messengers back. And David is livid. He's furious. He is so angry that he makes this vow. He says, God, if this time tomorrow I haven't wiped out every male that lives in Nabal's camp, then you do the same thing to me and my family and my men. I mean, that's serious stuff. He is so angry. And he, and he takes off. And as he's on his way, one of the servants says to Abigail, Nabal's wife, we got a problem here. She doesn't know what's happened. He tells her what's happened and she moves into action immediately and she gathers as much food as she possibly can and she takes the servants and heads out and she meets David and she gives him all this stuff asking him to relent. 
And he does. And David turns around and goes home. And Abigail turns around and goes to her home. And when she gets back, she waits till the next morning. She tells her husband about it. He has a stroke or a heart attack or something. We don't know exactly, but in about 10 days he dies. And David hears about his death. And as the pastor says, he woos Abigail and she becomes his wife. And you get to the end of the story and you almost feel like it ought to add at the very end. And they all lived happily ever after. <laughs> has one of those endings to it. But there's a whole lot more going on here than just living happily ever after. Nabal is a fool. Actually, that's what his name means, fool, which is probably why you don't see a lot of people naming their children Nabal. I mean, did his parents set him up or what, right? You know, he, he is a fool. He's stupid. He, he, you, know, it's, it, you look at him, you think, what were you thinking? This wealthy, wealthy man couldn't give away a little bit. And we, we, we know people in the world who are like that. But Nabal isn't the only fool in this story. David's a fool too. David, David you remember the beginning verse of this chapter says Samuel died. And a lot of scholars, commentators read that as something that just got interjected. It doesn't have anything to do with the rest of the story. And I couldn't, be, I couldn't disagree more. I think it has a lot to do with the story. Because Samuel is David's mentor. Samuel is the voice of God to David. Samuel is David, in a sense, David's security blanket. As David is traveling all over the countryside... Not knowing who he can trust and who he can't. The one person he knows he can rely on is Samuel. And Samuel's dead. And David is wrestling with, who do I turn to? Where's my security? Who do I talk to? Who do I trust? You know, I was relying on Samuel to, to sort of be my, you know, to help me out with this. And he's not there. And I guess now I'm going to have to do this myself. People are not sure who I am and what I can do. And without Samuel here, I've got to prove myself. And I have a feeling that some of that was underlying David's radically, radical emotional outburst when he gets this news about Nabal. He's got to prove himself. Because he has been, in our language, disrespected. And if you're disrespected, you can't just let that go. You have to do something about it. You don't want people to think you're weak. You don't want to think people to think that you're, you can just walk all over you. And especially in that culture, you can't let that go. You have to respond or, or you lose face. I mean, we see that now. How many times do we read about uh, a gang shooting or, or any other kind of violence and we hear the back, the back story is, well, they disrespected me. I had to do something about it. But here's the honest truth. We don't have to be shot at and still feel the same way David does. That people treat us with contempt, people disrespect us, people hurt us. It happens in the church all the time, it happens in our families, it happens in our friendships. And that hurt drives us to behavior that we would never think of before we felt that hurt. And that pain and that feeling of, of disrespect and feeling like we have to stand up for ourselves and we can't let people think we're weak drives us to behavior that looks an awful lot like David's. And actually, Abigail saves David from, from doing something that he was going to have to live with the rest of his life. At least three times in this passage... David or Abigail says, you saved, you, that we saved, David was saved from shedding unnecessary blood and out of avenging with his own hand instead of letting God take care of things. And that would have stayed with him and been on his conscience and been a part of his life from that moment on. And she saved him from it. And we admire David. And, and David is a great leader. But in this, in this story, 
he's not acting like a great leader. The hero of this story is not David, it's Abigail. It's a woman who in that culture is powerless and vulnerable. She's the hero of the story. She brings about peace to a circumstance that had violence written all over it. And as I read this story, my mind automatically goes back to the Beatitudes that we read a few earlier in the service. And I hear Jesus saying, blessed are the peacemakers. In the, in the uh, Monty Python movie, Life of Brian, you know, it's a spoof about a lot of different things. But there is a scene in there of, of the Sermon on the Mount. And there's a big crowd there. And when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, there's a woman way in the back who says, what did he say? And the guy in front of her says, I think he said, blessed are the cheesemakers. He says, cheesemakers? What's so special about cheesemakers? And her husband says, well, it's not just cheesemakers. It's anyone who would be involved in the dairy manufacturing industry. (laughs) You know, it's this ludicrous conversation. But here's the truth. To that group of people listening to Jesus on that mountainside... Blessed are the peacemakers is just as absurd as blessed are the cheesemakers. I mean, these are people who've been waiting centuries for the Messiah to come and to free them from those who are oppressing them and to retaliate against their enemies and to destroy them in every way possible. This is what they've been living for. And and they're beginning to think that Jesus might have some power to do that. His words are powerful, He's casting out demons. He's healing people. He's raising the dead. All these things are going on with the signs of power. And as they gather on that mountain, you can, you can almost feel the energy of this is the guy. He's going to set us free. And what do they hear? Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. It's crazy talk. Excuse me. <coughs> Excuse me. It's ludicrous. And what I find so fascinating about this is that Jesus says the peacemakers are blessed because they're called children of God. Peacemaking is the family business. It's what the children of God do. Children of God think like God and talk like God and act like God. And children of God are peacemakers. Now, not everyone who is a peacemaker in the world is necessarily a child of God, but everyone who is a child of God is committed to peacemaking. Jesus is clear about it. Now, when we hear of peacemaking, we, you know, we, we think, well, that, you know, there have to be some boundaries. There have to be some, some limits to that. And I mean, after all, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10 that he didn't come to bring peace, but he came to bring a sword. And I, I always find it fascinating that Jesus has all these things to say about peacemaking. And, but we love to focus on that one short verse about peace and the sword. But I think it's out of context from how we typically think of it. He's talking about family. It's in the context of how your family's going to respond to you. And he says sometimes when you do, when you're, when you're living in the spirit of Christ, when, you, when you're following the example of Christ, when, you, when you're doing what Christ wants you to do, you're being merciful and a peacemaker and meek, your family can't understand it. And you feel, they alienate you. You forgive those who have offended you. Sometimes those who are close to you just simply cannot grasp that. You love people and you care about people who are on the margins of society. Sometimes those who are closest to us look at us as though we're crazy. And there there is a wedge sometimes that's put between us. Not because we are being obnoxious. Not because we're being a troublemaker. Not because we're being foolish, 
but because sometimes that's just the natural way of living in a world that in many respects has rejected the kingdom of God. And being a peacemaker is about embracing the kingdom of God. The Beatitudes are not just, well, these are some nice things that you ought to think about. This is the revolutionary nature of the kingdom coming into our lives as the people of God. You think about the description of the kingdom that Isaiah gives us, of a wolf lying down with the lamb, and weapons being turned into farming tools, and and the desert blooming with flowers. It's radical, countercultural stuff. And peacemakers are are, are a means of bringing about the kingdom of God in heaven on earth. We wrestle with that because we love power. And I have I've come to the conclusion as, I, as you look at the life of Jesus, as you read the scriptures, that peacemakers always operate from a position not of power, but of weakness. Humility. Vulnerability. Abigail doesn't come to David and say, hey, why are you talking to my husband like that? You know, she, doesn't, she doesn't get in David's face. She bows down on the ground and she takes the blame. She wasn't even there. She didn't know anything about it. But she takes the blame upon herself. And you talk about vulnerable. She has no idea how David's going to respond to her. A couple of chapters earlier, Saul is upset because the uh, priest of Nob have helped David. And he goes in and just wipes out everything, man, woman, and child. She has no idea what this what this warrior is going to do to her when she bows down before him. But the only way to bring peace is through a spirit of humility and vulnerability and weakness. And it's hard because we love power. We have come to the conclusion that we can bring about peace on earth by legislation and by rights and by, and by engaging in powerful means. And yet Paul tells us that in 2 Corinthians 5, that Jesus reconciles the world to himself through the cross. Through weakness and vulnerability and death and how much more his children. It's a risk to be a peacemaker. You don't know how people are going to respond. You don't know what's going to happen when you step into a situation. And I suspect that for many of us, the peacemaking to which we might be called might not be so much between that person and that person, though sometimes God does call us into those circumstances. But often I think it's between that person and us. That something's not right in our relationship. Something isn't right in the way that we are... That, that, that we are relating to this other person. And the question that keeps confronting us and them is who's going to take the first step? Who's going to say, I'm sorry? Who's going to say, forgive me first? Who's going to be vulnerable? God's calling us to be peacemakers who take the first step. Ultimately, peacemaking is an act of trusting God. We don't know how it's going to turn out. People may not respond the way we want them to. People may respond negatively, harshly. But as long as we approach them in humility and a spirit of weakness and in the power of Christ... And in the grace of Christ, the results are up to God. We're just called to be people who do what we can to make peace. We're all confronted in the situations in which we find ourselves, in the relationships that that we are a part of. We're always confronted with whether we're going to be Troublemakers who act like fools or peacemakers who act like Jesus. Every day we're confronted with that question. 
Abigail decides to be a peacemaker. And women still have their husbands. And children still have their fathers. And David is saved from shedding innocent blood. Who knows what our acts of peacemaking will do. I want to ask you to take a moment to to pray, to meditate. And to ask God to reveal into each of our hearts if there is a person, a circumstance, maybe a group of people, that God may be prompting us to begin thinking about being a peacemaker. Heavenly Father, give us courage, first of all, to want to be peacemakers and to be willing to risk because we trust you and because we know that as your children, it's, it's what we do. Give us grace, Lord. To be committed through your mercy to be peacemakers. And as we sing this song, let us commit ourselves even today, right now, that peacemaking in our circumstances and in this world might begin with us as we surrender to you. Amen. Yeah.
Father, we pray that. Father, we pray that your grace would help us to be peacemakers. And let it begin with us today, now, wherever we find ourselves. And we pray this through Christ. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.